invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. You may want to grab a Bible in the pew in front of you or a mobile device or your own Bible you brought. And we're still looking at the temptations or the testings of Jesus. Uh, last week we saw how Jesus was tempted to give himself or the people physical bread to nourish their bodies, but Jesus understood that he needed to nourish a person's soul, more importantly. So today we look at the second temptation, but let's start back in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, of course that was the place in chapter 3 where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Then in verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, and he's quoting now from Deuteronomy that we just read in the sixth chapter, verse 13. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. And together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, a preschool Sunday school teacher was working with her four-year-old class one Sunday morning. She asked the children if they knew where God lives. And one little girl raised her hand very quickly. She was excited. She raised her hand, and she says, yeah, I know where God lives. He lives in our bathroom. Well, the teacher was a little puzzled by that response, and she said, well, really, how do you know that? And the little girl says, well, I know that because almost every morning, just before my daddy goes off to work, he goes to the bathroom door, and he bangs on it, and he yells, my God, are you still in there? That's where God lives, in the bathroom, if you're four years old. Well, you know, I'm sure that God lives in places besides the bathroom, don't you think? I, I think he probably resides in almost any room in our homes. I think he resides in our place of work our places of education, our places of recreation. He, he's with us in the car when we drive it. He's with us in the places where we walk. He's with us, I would hope, in this place that is especially designed for the worship of God that we call a sanctuary or a worship center. He's here with us, I think, this morning. Why is God here with us in all the places where we go, where he's here with us? because he resides within us. When we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, God comes to live 
in our lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So God is with us. He lives everywhere we go. But maybe the real focus should not be so much on the place where God resides, maybe we should focus a little bit this morning, and I think this is what was happening with Jesus in this text, maybe we need to think a little bit about the position that God occupies in our lives. What position does God have in your life? Is he in position number one? Is he number two? Is he number three, or is he in a position lower than those three numbers? What position does God occupy in your life? Because you see, until Jesus answers that question in this particular testing, the tempter is always going to have a foot in the door of Jesus' life. And until you answer that question, what position does God occupy in your life, the tempter's always going to have a foot in the door of your life, too. So who's number one? Who's number one in your life? That's where the tempter begins here in this second testing, this second temptation. He's bargaining with Jesus, and he's offering him the opportunity to have control over the entire world. The text says he led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he offered it to Jesus. You know, the Jewish people want a Messiah who can have the kingdoms of the world at his fingertips because they're tired, they're worn out from all of this Roman oppression, all of the taxes, the ruthlessness of the Roman rule. They're worn out from it, that they're ready for any type of release, whether it's by way of revolt, military war, or political mastery. They're ready. And in fact, there was a political religious party of Jesus' day called the Zealots, and they were continuing to press for a military solution to rid the Romans from their life. So you see, by accepting the tempter's offer, to have all of the kingdoms of the world at his fingertips, Jesus would be selling out his soul to Satan and displacing God from his rightful number one position in his life. Now, this is something that's very important for all of us to know what I'm about to tell you. And I, my guess is you already know it, but I want you to pay attention. Hear this very carefully. Who or what we love is who or what we worship and serve. And who or what we worship or serve is what is typically number one in our life. So who or what you love is what you're going to worship and serve. And who and what you worship and serve represents what's number one in your life. Now, this second temptation that Jesus faces, you and I are also going to face it. The kingdoms of the world are going to come our way too. But unlike Jesus, when the kingdoms of the world appear before us, we often want to grab them and very quickly 
God slips from his rightful place of being number one down to position number two, three, four, or even beyond. But I want you to understand that many of the things that we begin to embrace as number one in our lives are often good stuff. And those temptations, the way the tempter works, is that the temptations to put other things ahead of God come to us in such a way that we barely notice, we don't even realize, we don't even detect that it's happening in our lives. It's a subtle temptation because most of the things that we put number one at times ahead of God, they're good stuff. You know, we know, I mean, we know Scripture well enough, don't we? We know the Ten Commandments. We know Exodus 23, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We know that verse. We know Deuteronomy 6, 5. We just read it in our Old Testament lesson, which Jesus quotes. It says, and we call it the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. That's another way of saying make God the number one in your life. We know Deuteronomy 6, 13. We just read that as well, that Jesus quotes to the tempter. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, he amends the text. Jesus does just a little bit because the actual text says to fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship or fear. To worship something means to kneel down. The actual word means to bow down. The actual word in the Hebrew means it comes from a root that means to kiss the ground. To kiss the ground. I was watching a tennis tournament just in the last week or two, and the 18-year-old female professional player won her first major tennis tournament. In the two or three years, now she's 18 years old, and in the two or three years in which she'd played professional tennis, she'd won only, (coughs) only about $300,000. In the one tournament that she won that day, she won $1.3 million. And I noted that after she went to the net and shook her opponent's hand, she got down on her knees and kissed the court. She bowed down. She knelt. knelt, She kissed the ground. She didn't realize it, but she was worshiping. That's what that word means. And then the word fear, biblically, means more than I'm shaking in my boots about something or if we fear God that I'm afraid of him. Biblically, the word fear means to be in awe of him, means to reverence him, means to honor him. So biblically speaking, when we worship God, when we fear him, when we serve him, it means that he's captured our attention. It means he's captured our focus to the point that he's got our complete love. He's got our complete devotion. He's got our complete time and our commitment. And when you worship something or someone, it means that you're in awe of it. You fear it. You reference it. You love it. You worship it. You bow down to the point that it's got your complete devotion and love and commitment. 
Now, now what are some of those good, subtle things that can come our way that we may end up worshiping and loving and serving that end up displacing God from the number one position? Well, this past uh, Wednesday night, uh, we looked in one of our uh, Wednesday night studies that I'm a part of. We're using what's called the Bible Project videos. The Bible Project videos. And we were looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, the Bible Project is a crowdfunded, nonprofit organization. They create free animated videos and other resources, and they view the Bible as one unified story that leads to Jesus. So even if you've not been coming on Wednesday evening, you can go uh, Google or and or type in thebibleproject.com, and they have videos on all of the 66 books of the Bible and many different themes connected to the Bible. So the video we were looking at this past week uh, dealt in part with the theme of Babylon. Babylon, biblically, is an image of our corporate rebellion against God and of our tendency to define good and evil on our own terms. So we talked on Wednesday night a little bit about what are some of the Babylons in our modern day that tend to rule and reign and control our lives if we're not careful. They, in essence, become an idol. They, in essence, become another God in our lives. They, in essence, become number one if we're not careful. So I asked the group that I was a part of, I said, well, let, let's name some of the Babylons, some of the potential gods, some of the potential idols that may be out there that might become number one in our lives. What, what do you think some of the Babylons, some of the idols, some of the gods of this day and age that we name? If I gave you a moment just to jot down a couple, what, what would you come up with? Let, let, let me tell you a couple that we came up with. We, we came up with, you're not going to like this first one, we came up with social media, the addictive nature of social media. And not just social media, but media as a whole, television, movies, print media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, your email, surfing the web. We, we talked about how there are a lot of people in this world who are addicted to Facebook. Every day, several times a day, they've got to check that Facebook account to make sure they've not missed out on some news that has happened. Social media and the media at large is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There's a lot of good things in our world. But there's a lot of people who are addicted to it, and they don't even realize it. And in essence, the time and the energy and the love and the devotion that they give to that, if they're Christians, supersedes that to God. And it's so subtle, and you don't even realize it's happened to you. We talked about, you're not going to like this one either. Some of you are not. We talked about college and professional sports. You know, they don't call it March Madness for nothing. 
March Madness. All of the money, all of the time, all of the energy. Think about the time and energy that goes into tailgating and going to a college football or basketball game. The distances that sometimes you've got to drive to get there. Not a bad, I, I love athletics, I love sports. But if you're not careful, it can become an addictive reality and it becomes number one in your life because what you love is what you serve and what you worship. And what you worship and serve is what becomes number one in your life. We talked about the tendency sometimes to place so much emphasis on a particular political philosophy or party. You know, I know some Christians who believe that the Democratic Party is the savior of the world and not Jesus. And I know some Christians who believe that the Republican Party and its connected officials are the savior of the world and not Jesus. And if you think that God likes one of those two parties better than the other, I think you're badly mistaken. It's very easy to let your partisan political inclinations lead you to certain conclusions that therefore may displace God out of the equation. We talked about how work, your profession, your job, and just the busyness of life can sometimes push God aside and make it number one. We talked about the things that we accumulate, the possessions, the money, the stuff that needs to go in those 40 trash bags that Steve Harding showed us in the screen a few minutes ago. How sometimes that can be our God. And you know the fact is that all of these things can be addictive to the point that they control our lives rather than we controlling it and what we love and what we worship and what we serve controls us and becomes number one in our lives. Our youth are wrapping up this morning a weekend event called Disciple Now. And they've been doing it for, I guess, about 14 to 15 years now. It's a weekend in-house retreat where they spend the night in host homes and they have worship and Bible studies and host homes and down at our branches location on Friday night and Saturday night. And they're down there this morning and they'll wrap up at 11 o'clock worship here uh, in, in that service. And I was asked to be the Friday night speaker for Disciple Now. And I really had a great time uh, being with the students and with the other adults who were part of it. And one of the things, our theme is on the church and how the church is meant, how we're meant to be together and how we're meant to love each other and be with each other and not try to go it alone. And so one of the things I did was I brought my tennis gear with me. I brought my tennis bag and my tennis shoes, and my knee braces, and my elbow brace, and some tennis balls. Yeah, when you get to be old, you have to wear braces uh, in order to play the sport. Brought my tennis hat, brought my tennis racket, all the balls. And I was talking to them about, about the sport of tennis, and I told them, I said, you know, an interesting thing about tennis, and you'll have to listen to this very carefully if you don't play tennis or know much about tennis, but I told them that tennis is the only sport 
where love means absolutely nothing. Did you get that one? You know, you know what that's about? See, see, when you score tennis, the score of zero in tennis is called love. So if we play the first point and you win it, you get 15 points and I have zero points, which means I have love. So the score is 15 love. And if we play the second point, you get another 15 points. So now it's 30 love. And if we play the third point and you win that point, I don't know why tennis is this way, but you only get 10 points the next go round. So now you've got 40 points and the score is 40 love. Tennis is the only sport where love means absolutely nothing. But I told our students on Friday night that the game of following Jesus is a sport where love means absolutely everything. It means everything. It means everything in your relationship to God. It means everything in your relationship to other people because let's don't forget that Jesus put two scriptures together from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus that we call the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So our faith is the game in following Jesus where love means everything. You know, when we, when we go to family gatherings on Leslie's side of the family, she often will bring fried cornbread and it thrills our brother-in-law to no end. He loves her fried cornbread to the point that he will sit there and eat it and say, Leslie is my number one. <laughs> Leslie is my number one. Now, now, he's not saying that God is no longer number one in his life. He's not saying that Leslie is necessarily number one. He's not necessarily saying that cornbread is number one in his life. He, he's being a little facetious, and he's being complimentary about the cornbread and about Leslie's cooking of it when he says Leslie is number one. But you know, I think all of us would do well to acknowledge that there really are times in our lives, seasons of our life, maybe on a daily basis in our life, we all would do well to acknowledge the reality that God is not always number one. We should name that. That's how we battle that temptation, I think, is that we start to name those places where God really, honestly, truly is not number one. Yes, God, I am putting my job first. Yes, God, I'm putting my political party number one. Yes, God, the things I've accumulated around my life is number one. Yes, God, today or this week, Facebook has been number one. We battle the temptation by naming the reality and the truth. There are times when other things or other people are number one. And then we ask for God's help. We ask him to help us to love him. 
and then to worship him and to fear him, to be in awe and in reverence of him, to serve him with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. So really, honestly, this morning, who's your number one?